1: In bright pink swooping picture postcard font, the billboard reads, Wish You Were Here, in letters three feet high. Behind the writing, palm trees sway against a blue sky above a bluer ocean, and gentle surf breaks on golden sand. Parked on that sand is a gleaming black and white police cruiser. And below it, another slogan, this one all caps We're hiring. The campaign was the brainchild of Fort Lauderdale Police Department, which, like many across the country, has been struggling to recruit and retain officers. Since the pandemic, hundreds of thousands more people have relocated to Florida, and those communities need policing. Governor Ron DeSantis would even like to sweeten the deal with a $5,000 signing-on bonus. These unconventional job ads were spotted late last year as far from Florida's sunny southeast as a highway in Chicago and New York's Times Square, Their message is clear. Leave your cold northern reaches and communities hostile to law enforcement. Because Florida is getting life right. And, the ad suggests, the rest of America could do worse than try to be more like Florida too. I'm John Pradeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... What should America learn from the popularity of the Sunshine State? Florida was once dismissed as peripheral, an appendage to continental America, notable for retirees in golf carts and strange crimes involving alligators. No longer, it's now the number one destination for American and foreign movers alike, and the 15th largest economy in the world. And as it booms, its politics are veering to the right. How is this remarkable growth transforming a crucial swing state? And what lessons does the Florida model hold for the rest of America? With me to try and decode what is an incredibly important but at times puzzling state are Alexandra Switch-Bass, who's just back from a month reporting in Florida, and she's just written a special report about that, and John Fassman. Alexandra, I can see on the camera that you're back home in Texas. Is it good to be home or are you missing Florida a bit?
2: I had a great time driving Florida, although I just was there again for a new story and had something that I never thought would happen. I was on the beach in Miami and a self-described former cocaine cowboy came up to me and handed me a pamphlet and tried to convert me. So uh, Florida is full of surprises.
1: It sure is. John, how are
0: things going your end? Things are good. It is, uh, this is not directly Florida related. It is opening day of the baseball season today. And it's a testament to how much I love this show and all of you that I haven't come down with a 24-hour flu that requires spending 17 of it in a bar somewhere.
1: Well, you're you're very good to be ignoring the baseball. Thank you. There are, of course, lots of other things we could be talking about this week. There's been fresh evidence of war crimes in Ukraine, a surprise vote on labor unionization at Amazon, which we've covered in the Money Talks podcast. And in Oklahoma, there's been a controversial and concerning vote on abortion. And we'll be looking at all those subjects in future episodes. But today, we're talking about Florida. This week we really wanted to take advantage of having Alexandra's reporting fresh in her notebook. Uh, it's not often you get to spend a whole month uh, in a state and travel top to bottom as you did Alexandra, right? Can you begin by telling our listeners what you spent the early part of this year doing in Florida and why?
2: Yes, I had an adventure by road. I flew in and rented a car in Mobile, Alabama and drove all the way around Florida. My last point was way to the south in Key West and the road trip allowed me to see Florida is diversity. It, it's a state that has a reputation for being full of retirees and beaches, but in fact it's extremely diverse and getting to do it by road rather than flying from place to place allowed me to help connect it and understand it a lot better. No matter where you drive in Florida, there are two common features. it's incredibly flat and there are cranes and construction equipment everywhere)
0: Today. We're uh, very excited. This will be Live Oaks' first single family parent community. We've looked at
2: it. I stopped at Welland Park, a planned community about halfway between Sarasota and Fort Myers on the western Gulf Coast for the groundbreaking ceremony of a brand new development.
0: We appreciate you doing it under budget and ahead of schedule. (laughs) So thank you.
2: The atmosphere was celebratory and lighthearted with lots of speeches by the project's backers. Then people broke for photographs wearing hard hats. I mean, this is one of the fastest-selling
3: communities in the country right now, and probably will stay that way. Everything is leased before
2: it's even built. I was there with Leslie Deutsch, a real estate expert at John Burns Real Estate Consulting.
3: We're looking at a a really unique development that's going to create small houses. I think they're in size from 600 square
2: feet up to about 1,300 square feet. Around us, there were renderings of how idyllic the place would look. But just then, it looks like authentic Florida, uninhabitable swampland in the middle of nowhere.
3: It is a lot of cleared land, a lot of dirt with a beautiful lake. People pay extra to be on water and everywhere you are.
2: Property makes up almost a fifth of the state's GDP and has driven repeated booms and busts. The current boom is of spectacular proportions. — come from; It's not just
3: New York and the Northeast anymore. They're coming from California and the Midwest, and they're coming really from everywhere. Um, and they see the affordability of the homes here versus where they're coming from.
2: — Last year, Florida was the top migration destination in America. And Sarasota, near Welland Park, has seen house prices shoot up 50% since the beginning of the pandemic.
3: — There's still a lot of retirees and snowbirds, for sure. But you're getting more people that can work from home. You're getting a lot of companies move down here. It's usually the executives that come first and then they, they open it up to the workforce. So this is not a retirement town only. There's a lot of young people moving here too.
0: You know, I got here in March. You know, by May I was already staying for a year. By September I was already staying forever.
2: Jeff Zelaznick is one of the founders of Major Food Group a New York-based restaurant group known for hip spots like Carbone and Dirty French.
0: I'll always be a New Yorker. I just now feel like a smart New Yorker.
2: We sat on the patio at ZZ's, a private club in Miami's Design District. It's one of four restaurants he's opened in South Florida over the past year, and he's now looking to open more in Tampa and Orlando. What's it like to run a business here versus New York? Are there any challenges here that you didn't have in New York?
0: It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's hard to explain, you know, in New York, for better or worse, you know, everything that you do, especially when you're opening a restaurant or building anything, you know, they make it as difficult as possible. Here they make it as easy as possible. Isn't that what public officials are supposed to do? Help the people that are coming to their cities succeed, hire hundreds of people? Each restaurant I open is a hundred plus jobs, right? So why, why wouldn't you want me to get open?
2: I know you're not in the business of politics, but do you have a guess about kind of politically how Florida's going to change with so many New Yorkers and Californians and people from Connecticut, elsewhere, moving here?
0: I think the people that move here know what the politics are. And, you know, if people are choosing to move to
1: Florida, there's a reason.
2: COVID-19 caused a lot of people to reconsider where they wanted to live. Florida's lack of lockdowns attracted many. Low taxes are also a draw, but Florida is so closely divided that its new arrivals can't help but shape its politics.
4: It's the number one question we have in this midterm election season. How are the people that have left New York during the pandemic going to vote?
2: I went from one of Florida's newest restaurants to its oldest, Columbia in Tampa, founded by Cubans in 1905, to talk to a veteran analyst of Florida's shifting allegiances.
4: I'm Susan McManus, a political scientist from the University of South Florida, retired. I'm a native born Floridian. There aren't many of us. And my family raised oranges, and I just love Florida politics to this day. What we do know is that the people who have moved in here during and after the pandemic can definitely change the party politics and voting patterns in specific areas of the state where they're concentrated. And this is exactly why you have to do constant, constant demographic analyses to figure out who's moving in and what issues can drive them to vote for your candidate. Gone are the days when Florida's all old people or that all Cubans are Republicans. This is now a state where you have to look specifically, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Putting the pieces together in Florida is probably the most difficult of any of the states.
2: Back at the groundbreaking at Welland Park, the assembled real estate executives hope this barren patch will soon be full of perfect suburban homes, housing people from across America and the world.
0: If you build it, they will
2: come, goes the expression.
0: 2022 is off to a great start. I look forward to seeing Stillwell at Welland Park come to life several more of these projects in the next few years.
2: The people keep arriving. And with every new arrival, Florida is changing too.
1: Alexandra, I think any of us who've spent some time in Florida will be familiar with the idea that at least the southern part of the state is really diverse. It's a melting pot. There are folks from all over the world there What really struck me reading your special report was quite how high a proportion of Floridians are born out of state, how the state has benefited so much from internal migration. I mean, Susan McManus mentioned there in passing that she's one of a rare breed of native born Floridians. There really aren't very many, are there?
2: No, Florida is a state of foreigners, uh, whether they're born outside of the country or another American state. Around a fifth of people living in Florida were born in another country. 40% of Floridians have moved there from another state. And so it's very hard to understand a shared Floridian identity. The fact that people are from elsewhere hugely shapes Florida uh, and its politics.
0: Does that imply that you think that it's, it's sort of low tax, low investment policies are going to change, that those are artifacts of a state with a disproportionate share of older people and that as more young people and families move there, they'll start demanding more services?
2: I think that's absolutely a possibility. I, I think When I think about Florida, I think one of the most pressing issues in in the state is Intergenerational conflict. And I think you have retirees who do not necessarily want to spend, although they do thrive due to government programs. It's important to point out, such as Medicare, the health care scheme for the elderly, but they do not necessarily want to vote to expand Medicaid, the health care scheme for the poor. Uh, they also, although environmental issues are important to, f- to people living in Florida, it's not Necessarily true that people want to bear a lot of the cost for some of the modifications that would be made to make Florida more resilient. And I so, so I think your question, John, is a key one about how the interests of the elderly will clash potentially with the interests and will of the young. I will say that this moment Politically, the leadership in Florida is saying that the migration we've seen is due to Republican policies. So, for example, Florida's low tax policy and then also its COVID restrictions and the lack thereof. Florida has defined itself as being anti-regulation, pro-business. And so I think in the near term, that streak is likely to continue. But I do think that there's this question of whether demographic changes and the backgrounds of people moving in will change the political identity of the state.
1: If you rewind 10 or 12 years, Democrats in particular thought that as Florida became more diverse, it would become more like California, i.e. reliably democratic. And instead what seems to have happened is with this migration, both from outside the U.S. and from inside the U.S., Florida seems to become more like Texas instead. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, one of the striking things about Florida's demography to me is is just how diverse the state's Hispanic community is. You know, I remember when I covered the 2020 race there, there were there were different events, Dominicans for Biden, Cubans for Biden, Venezuelans for Biden, each group engaged on its own because of course each group has its own individual, you know, concerns and 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 particular history. Now I think unfortunately for Democrats, a number of these groups, Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, These groups are very susceptible to to Republican attacks on socialism. And we'll talk later in the show about, you know, Democrats' organizational woes in Florida, but I think Republicans really start with a huge advantage among Hispanic voters in Florida that they don't necessarily have in the rest of America.
1: Okay, we'll get back to meet a Florida politician in whose footsteps you were inadvertently traveling, Alexandra, in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you want access to all of The Economist's journalism, including Alexandra's excellent special report, then you'll need a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. Um, Alexandra and John, what did you guys particularly like in the most recent edition? I know
0: I'm a broken record on this, but I think our colleagues in Ukraine have been doing extraordinary, brave work. I think that... uh Ollie Carroll and Tim Judah, in particular, their eyewitness reports this week are really just harrowing.
2: I would second John's point. I think the correspondents who have been doing work in Ukraine are putting a lot at risk. And I think the Zelensky interview was tremendously interesting and a great reminder of how people can engage with our content across a variety of formats.
1: That's certainly true. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. If you do want to subscribe, it's in the notes for this episode. In a glass case at the Florida Capitol Museum in Tallahassee sit a pair of worn brown boots. They're so well worn that the sides are scuffed yellow and the soles have gone right through. They belonged to a candidate for the 1970 Florida Democratic primary for senator. There were five men in that race. One was a former governor, two were millionaires, and one was a country lawyer with just 4% name recognition. Nobody was betting on him. But then he started walking.
4: Converting shoe leather into potential voter success at the polls is Lakeland Senator Lawton Childs' bag. The Central Florida lawmaker is not endowed with huge amounts of cash to uplift his image, so he's hit the road.
1: And he didn't stop. Starting in the small sawmill town of Century on the Alabama state line, Lawton Childs walked over a thousand miles, crisscrossing the state all the way down to Key Largo.
4: I'm walking and listening. I'm trying to find out what people think I ought to do as a United States senator. What do y'all think? Well, we think... Anything would be an improvement.
1: Tall and slightly stooping, in short sleeved shirt and tie and khaki trousers, Walk in Lawton became a political sensation. By the end, he'd reportedly shaken hands with more than 40,000 people. And the strategy worked.
4: How would you answer those that say you were elected by a gimmick? Well, uh, I think uh, all campaigning, you know, is a way of trying to go to the people. Charles won that Senate seat
1: and held it for 18 years. And
4: if uh, going to see the people is a gimmick, then uh, I'm all for it.
1: He then successfully ran for governor in 1990, still trading on the power of shoe leather and a shoestring budget. Talk
4: to me. I found the, the great frustration with the people is they always say that... You know, after a guy's elected, they never see him again until he comes around. So uh, I want to try to change that. And so but a
1: quarter of century available. after Governor Charles first strapped on those boots, Florida had changed beyond recognition. And in the 1994 midterms, the veteran faced a new opponent. Good evening and welcome to the Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center. Tonight, the debate for
0: governor of Florida. Two men who want to head this state in the next four years.
1: Lawton Childs and Jeb Bush in a race... Too close to call. The sharp-suited young Texan businessman was everything Charles was not. He painted Charles as a folksy old-timer, the wrong man for the new Florida. We have to try something different. We have to give people power that don't have power today. My plan, Governor Charles, if you read it, and maybe you did and you're just lying because With you want to... With just days to go before the vote, it looked like Jeb Bush had it all sewn up. We would have redefined what public education is. Governor exactly Charles... But then, Childs played his trump card.
4: First, I want to call attention to this uh, old liberal liar. You know, that goes on and on and on and on. My mama told me, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But, But let me tell you, one other thing about the old liberal, the old he coon walks just before the light of day.
1: Bush looked blank. Even Charles' own communications director was baffled. The governor was way off script. But a key part of the audience knew exactly what he meant. In rural Florida law, the he-coon is the oldest, wisest member of a raccoon pack. Charles was saying, don't count me out yet. Unlike this young pretender, I'm one of you. The 94 midterms brought a Republican revolution, but not in Florida. Charles squeaked past Bush by just 60,000 votes. It was one of the biggest upsets of the year. In Governor Charles's official portrait in the state capital, his worn boots are tucked under the desk and an old raccoon creeps across the lawn. Jeb Bush had learned a hard lesson. Four years later, when he did become governor, he too promised a direct connection with the people via email to jeb at jeb.org. In his official portrait, his blackberry sits charging on the desk beside him. The GOP has held the Florida governorship ever since. And today's Republican leaders continue to use technology to connect directly with ordinary Floridians. The media momentum is all theirs. Florida's Democrats, meanwhile, are yet to fill the walking senator's shoes. Alexandra, we've been conditioned by 20 years of election watching to think of Florida as a purple state because it is on presidential nights. Is that correct? Or is it actually a Republican state these days? I mean, plenty of Republicans think it is and plenty of Democrats, I think, fear that that might be the case.
2: In my journey across Florida, I I was in Tallahassee and I spoke with Chris Sproul, Speaker of the Florida House, who pointed to voter registration data to show that some of the people who are moving into Florida are helping turn it into a Republican one. And now, today, there are around 43,000 more registered Republican voters um, than Democrats. A decade ago, Democrats claimed 558,000 more registered voters than Republicans. So it's been a really large shift. Even though people are saying that Florida is now Republican, and of course the state government is Republican, uh, it is a much more competitive state than, than people give Florida credit for. The last three gubernatorial elections for example have been decided by margins of 1.2% or less and there were three recounts in 2018 alone if you add up the ballots for every presidential election from 1992 to 2016 as we did the results in florida were separated by less than 20,000 votes cumulatively or point percent. Oh, so I think that gives a sense of how competitive Florida has been in its history and is likely to remain.
1: So given it's so competitive on those numbers, how come Democrats have done so appallingly in state politics for such a long time? I mean, as we said that, you have to go back to the mid 90s to find the last time a Democrat was elected governor.
2: I'd point to a couple of things. The first is that Republicans had to work hard to rise. And as the underdogs, they invested a lot in party infrastructure, voter registration drives, uh, and the like. They've just been Extremely good at registering people um, and operating as a state party. And Democrats have not invested similarly. It's important to note that Democrats generally are largely outspent by Republicans. And that's evident in this race with Governor DeSantis, whose top three Democratic challengers combined have raised a fraction of the amount that Governor DeSantis has.
0: The organizational point tracks with what I saw in. 2020. The Republicans were just really, they were just well-organized, you know, and we've had Fernando Mondi on the show before. He's a Florida political consultant, and he makes the point that Obama won largely because he was there. The campaign was there early. They stayed there. They listened to people. They made a big effort. In 2016, the Clinton campaign sort of assumed that it was baked in, and they didn't work as hard as Trump did. That was the same in 2020. I just found Republicans were out walking neighborhoods. They had events all the time where they reached as many people as possible. The Biden campaign tended to be a bit more top down. And that matters. It matters. People like being contacted. They like being spoken to. They like being heard. And that sort of investment in organizations seems really to have paid off for Republicans in Florida.
2: And right now you see Republicans doing voter registration drives at gas stations. They're extremely creative about using voters' frustration to galvanize support for the party.
1: Alexandra, when a single party has been in power for a long time in a state, it seems that they kind of get a bit—not exactly lazy, but a bit complacent—and stop appealing so much to median voters. Uh, I think you saw that in Texas, right? It kind of seems like something similar is happening in Florida. I mean, the early generation of Republican leaders in Florida, you know, the Jeb Bush, kind of Marco Rubio lot, who were kind of quite pragmatic conservatives, seem to have been superseded by a kind of more culture war strain that you're now seeing in the state legislature. Is is that fair, do you think? Or do you think I've got that wrong?
2: I think that when people have been in power for a while and they see... Democrats, for example, as not having a viable chance, they start worrying much more about their primary campaigns. And that's why you see people in Texas tilt to the right. You saw that a lot with Governor Abbott, who brought up guns and abortion because his biggest fear was not being beaten by a Democrat for governor, but losing his primary. I think what's happening in Florida is slightly different right now. And I would point less to the primary than Trump as a source of influence. And I think you've seen Governor DeSantis and the state legislature really veer to the right this legislative session. And I think that's because Governor DeSantis sees hewing to Trump's agenda as a winning formula. And that's why he's proposed creating a special police unit to investigate election fraud, which the legislature did. He's taken up social issues, as has the legislature. So we've seen critical race theory, abortion discussions of sexuality in the don't say gay or parental rights bill. And so I see it being more Trump's influence than a concern about a primary challenger.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was gonna I was going to gently push back on on John's assumption. It's it's true that Ron DeSantis is not Jeb Bush, but today's Republican Party is not the Republican Party of 25 years ago. And I think DeSantis sits pretty well within the mainstream of today's Republican Party.
2: The thing I have also been thinking about is what Democrats stand for as a national party and how that either fits in or doesn't with state politics. And I think that Texas and Florida are two states where the shift to the left that we've seen with the Democrats is not resonating with voters.
1: Yeah, I feel like the Don't Say Gay bill, the parental rights bill, is a little window into what American politics is like in 2020. I mean, this is a bill aimed at curing a phantom problem. There doesn't seem to be much sex ed for under 10s or indeed discussion of gender identity in classrooms for kids who are less than 10 years old. At the same time, the reaction to it, caricatured as the don't say gay bill, is kind of over the top as well. You feel like that energy could have been more usefully spent on fixing some of Florida's problems. I mean, the cynical view of
0: this, frankly, odious bill is that the problem it is aimed at is DeSantis's 2022 race, right? It's one of two marquee races... DeSantis and Marco Rubio's Senate race. Alexandra, I know it's early days yet, but how would you handicap those? If you had to predict a winner of those two races, who's going to win?
2: So I think the DeSantis one is the easiest to predict. I think something very unexpected would have to happen to change the outcome of the gubernatorial race. DeSantis is both popular within Florida, but also so nationally popular, and I think his supporters are likely to turn out. Democrats don't really have the name recognition. You have one of the Democratic contenders is Charlie Crist, who was a Republican, previously served as governor in Florida. Um, and then you have some lesser known candidates in Nikki Fried, who is the only Democrat elected to state white office currently. She's agricultural commissioner. And then Annette Tadeo, who is, I think, a very interesting candidate, but does not have name recognition. She's an immigrant from Colombia who now serves in the state Senate. When it comes to Demings versus Rubio, I think that's one to watch. Uh, That's much more competitive than many people expected. You have an African-American former police chief of Orlando running against a Cuban-American U.S. editor from Miami. Miami. And a lot of outside money and outside attention will be directed at that race. So I think that one is much closer than people expected. I think a few months ago, people thought it was hands down going to be a Rubio victory. I think that's still the likeliest outcome. But the very fact that it's competitive will make it fascinating to watch.
1: Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from the mayor of Miami about whether his city is a model or an exception to the rest of the country.
4: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Alexandra, you spoke to dozens of Floridians for your special report. One of them was the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez.
2: I spoke with Mayor Suarez in his office. It was a really interesting conversation, although a bit echoey, and he's moving around. Francis Suarez is a Republican, uh, Cuban-American, born in Miami, the son of Miami's first Cuban-born mayor.
0: And he's the first mayor of Miami ever to have been born in
1: Miami. Yes. That's totally bonkers.
2: And so has a... Uh, really strong tie to Miami and its history, but is really intent on reinventing Miami. So he has used COVID-19 to help attract tech entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley and elsewhere. He has a tagline, hashtag, how can I help? That started a bit as a gimmick, uh, uh, but has turned into a real movement.
5: Part of the reason why I think we're succeeding while maybe other cities are, are struggling is we follow some very basic rules, right? The first thing we do is we don't tax people more than absolutely necessary. So we've lowered taxes actually to the second lowest rate since the 1960s and something shocking happened. We've actually increased revenue significantly. We've actually doubled uh, the amount of revenue that we have. So making it attractive has actually brought people uh, to Miami. Um, That's given us more resources to focus on quality of life things uh, that also attract people, like um, investing in police and policing, uh, our parks, and then, of course, on sports. And then we've leaned into innovation. We're number one in the nation in tech job growth. According to PitchBook, we went up 200% in VC deals completed year over year. If we were to do that for two more consecutive years, in theory, we could potentially uh, supplant some Silicon Valley cities. We're ranked the healthiest city in America and the happiest city in America and number one in pandemic recovery. So we think we have a formula, the formula that you know Miami's created that we can export to urban cities across America.
2: Mm-hmm. And when you talk to the other mayors in Florida, what is the number one issue you're hearing that's on their mind in terms of conservative challenge that they're grappling with?
5: I think the number one issue from a city perspective and in this country is always income inequality. How do we create a fair world um what is government's role in that you don't want government to be a hindrance in a, for example creation of affordable housing right you don't want to take too long on permitting you don't want to take too long on the regulatory side we in the city have a hundred million dollar fund for affordable housing and we're going to leverage that not only with private sector funds which we've leveraged to the tune of about 20 to one on a given project some sometimes high as 25 to one which means for every dollar we put in the private sector is putting in 25 dollars And then on the other side, we're trying to, you know, as as mayor, as leader, right, we're trying to bring companies to come here, create high-paying jobs, market the city well, effectively, create a business-friendly environment.
2: Changing here slightly, um, the the people you're seeing move here from California and Northeast, how are they going to change the politics of Miami?
5: Well, they're making it more Republican.
2: You think?
5: No, I mean, that's what the registration numbers show. The people who are migrating uh, are obviously either Republican or are changing parties. People who are leaving a particular place are leaving that place because of whatever the reasons they're leaving, right? Political and potentially economic, right? Like taxation or whatever it is. I don't think that they're coming to a new place to recreate what they left.
2: Do you think it's a distinct political profile who's moving to Miami versus elsewhere in Florida? Or do you think people generally share the same characteristics that they're going to skew... More
5: conservative. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I got reelected by 80%. You know what I mean? I think people are coming here because they want to be happy. They want to be healthy. You know, they want uh, to be prosperous. Um, politics is not always the driving force in their decision making. So I, I, I think that's the best way that I can answer it for you.
2: Can I ask you a question on labor? The reason I drove in from Mobile, Alabama was to visit the Welcome to Florida Visitor Center and it was closed due to staffing shortages. Um, I'm curious to what extent you're hearing from businesses here, how much of an issue hiring it, um, and how it's going to get resolved in Florida?
5: I think it's a huge issue across the country. I don't think it's a Florida issue. And I think, frankly, you know, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'll say it anyways. I mean, I think we have to really seriously talk about immigration policy in this country. We have to look at legal immigration and 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 look at whether or not the current levels of legal immigration are serving our country well or whether they should be increased significantly, right? And I mean significantly. It's a way of changing the conversation, right? From this whole concept of illegal immigration and the border and this, that, and the other, to wait, what's what best serves our country? A. And B., we're a country of immigrants i mean my parents came to this country my dad came when he was 12 my mom came when she was seven you know this is the greatest country in the world
2: and why would you get in trouble for saying
5: (laughs) no just because you know it's sort of a counter narrative sometimes to the political with the the political rhetoric of (laughs) of the day
2: one other question about the direction of the republican party in florida i mean if we look at this legislative session um it would suggest like a real turn to the right whether it's discussing gays or race in classrooms or um, abortion at 15 weeks—is this um, the direction that plays well in Florida? Do you think, with conservatives?
5: I'm not about making a statement. I'm about making a difference. I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> kind of like awkward silence. Uh,
2: no, no, you don't want to add anything
5: on the discussion. I don't this think I have to. Session. All right.
2: Well, thank you for
3: taking
5: the time. Guys.
1: Alexandra, that was very masterful, asking of an awkward question at the end. I yeah. mean, he's an unusual Republican, right, and shows how unusual Miami politics is. I mean, you heard him there talk about how he worries about income inequality and call for more legal migration he clearly doesn't want to be drawn too much on what the Republican Party's up to in Tallahassee.
2: Absolutely. I I think there's a pretty stark difference between his worldview and the South Florida worldview with some of the rhetoric and press releases out of Tallahassee, which are very focused on illegal immigration. So I think the Mayor Suarez is polite, but that was absolutely a jab at Tallahassee. Yeah,
1: and he has a good story to tell at the moment because Miami is booming. But I guess there's a more cynical explanation for its current success, which is that the weather's great, but that's been a constant. But more importantly, wealthy Americans really like not paying income tax. And Florida has no income tax, has quite a high sales tax compared with other states. But that's not too much for bother if you have, you know, if you've made your money already. It does feel sort of like the
0: California dream of the late 20th century, right? We can move somewhere and have a nice house and a two-car garage and a good job and the weather's nice that that dream has become the Florida dream, right? That promise is there now. I just wonder, Alexander, how long do you think that can last given all the external pressures, the environmental pressures, that's historically been a low cost, low service state? Is it a model and how lasting do you think that model is?
2: I think we're witnessing the Florida years. Florida is unquestionably booming. It is politically, culturally so relevant and high profile, but... There are cracks in the foundation. Florida has been a low tax state, um, but it also has a lower cost of living and pays people less because they can't afford to live there. Uh, But affordability is increasingly becoming an issue, especially in cities like Miami, where in December, Miami was the metro area that saw the steepest rise in rents. Property insurance is rising at the fastest clip in the country as gas prices rise. Nationally, a state like Florida, which has a really weak public transportation system, is also going to be stressed. And so I think that there are increasingly cracks uh, in an inflationary environment with, with what Florida offers citizens. These are the Florida years in the short term. Of course, if you take a longer view, I think the threats that we could talk about, such as environmental threats, sea level rise, flooding and the like, increase and it becomes a very different conversation.
1: How much will do you think there is to adapt to climate change in Florida. I mean, it's quite striking that you do have some prominent Republican politicians like Governor Ron DeSantis who take environmentalism somewhat seriously in Florida. But that's not quite the same as saying Florida will be able to muster the will to adapt to climate change, which is going to be a severe, severe challenge, raising a lot of tax revenue, frankly.
2: Yes, it's true that the Republican Party in Florida takes environmental issues more seriously than the National Party. And we've also seen an investment in resilience to sea level rise and the like from the state. So that is A positive development. But as long as Florida's main industry is growth and continues to rely on population growth and more people coming, that inevitably leads to environmental destruction. And the environment is Florida's natural buffer to sea level rise and extreme weather events. The Everglades, for example, um, help absorb water. is now about half the size it was about a century ago. And so Florida is kind of racing against the Alexander,
0: Alexandra, I'm struck by your statement that Florida's main industry is, is growth, is population, rather than any particular business. And I wonder if that's what enables Ron DeSantis to take sort of business oppositional stances, right? Telling businesses that they can't mandate vaccines, taking sort of oppositional stance against Disney, which protested his don't say gay bill, How would you characterize the relationship between DeSantis and the the big businesses in his state?
2: I think that the headline is that Florida is pro-business, but you are seeing this really interesting thread with this battle with Disney. Disney was pointed to as a company that embodied the California exodus, quote unquote, to Florida. Um, And yet now Disney is in Governor DeSantis's crosshairs for its opposition to the uh, the parental rights or don't say gay bill. And we've seen a similar thing happen in Texas where the business lobby has lost control of the Republican Party. And that's my interpretation of what's going on in Florida. It's true that comparatively, Florida is pro-business, but many Republicans in the state will choose to push social issues over pleasing chief executives.
1: Alexandra, last one for me. Florida has a reputation in the rest of the country for being a slightly absurd place. It's the home of the Florida man meme, you know, in which Florida man gets assaulted by his own pet alligator while redecorating his bathroom wearing scuba gear. Is this reputation deserved, having traveled from head to toe of the state?
2: I think I read that headline, actually. (laughs) Uh, So, it's interesting. It is true that Florida has its fair share of wacky people, as do other states like California. But one thing that people might not realize about the Florida man reputation is that it actually has to do with a public records law. So, Florida Florida was an early state to embrace transparency laws. They're called sunshine laws. And so that means that a lot of instances that in other states might never have been released to the public can actually be unearthed in Florida.
1: I'm so glad you said that. So Florida man is essentially the creation of good governance laws, sunlight for the sunshine state. Exactly. Okay, you know the drill. I have a quiz for both of you. The first mention of the Everglades in The Economist was in June 1957, when the paper reported that 94% of America's 3,700 mile Atlantic coastline had been bought up by private owners and developers. A large part of the remaining 6% was protected by the Everglades National Park, a million and a quarter acres of swamp, mangrove, and alligators in Florida. Question one. America now has 63 national parks, 35 new ones since that piece was published. And if you think that a million acres is big, it really isn't. Which is the biggest national park in America? Uh, I would guess it's the, is it Denali up in Alaska?
2: Ooh, that's a very good guess. I'll say Yellowstone.
1: Um, I think I would have gone with Yellowstone. The answer, Fasman gets half a point for being in Alaska, but it's a different national park in Alaska. It's Alaska's wrangell St. Elias National Park. The Everglades would fit into it more than five times with room to spare. Two decades later, in 1979, the economists joked that in Florida, it may soon be man that is the truly endangered species. After state laws were brought in to protect alligators in the 1960s, their numbers soared more than tenfold, and Floridians were complaining of disappearing pets and finding gators on their front lawns. Question 2: Which US president kept an alligator as a pet? And for a bonus point, who gave it to him as a present?
2: John, I feel like this is one of those party tricks that you've been wanting to share for years. Tell us, John Vasman. I
1: have no
0: idea. Uh, George Washington and the King of France.
1: The answer is John Quincy Adams. Um, I think you get half a point because it was a gift from the Marquis de Lafayette. The Marquis <laughs> de Lafayette was given a gator while touring the 24 United States in 1824 and in 1825, and he re-gifted it to President Adams, who put the reptile in a tub in the still-under-construction East Wing. So there you go. That, that's quality re-gifting.
2: I wonder if it became a handbag.
1: I'm sure it's stuffed somewhere. Apparently, President Herbert Hoover's son, Alan, also had two pet gators in the early 30s, which actually roamed on the White House grounds. I wonder how they got on in winter in DC. Yeah,
0: that's an insane pet. They don't
1: come when you call them and they can actually kill you. Well, well Alexandra, special thanks to you this week and congratulations on a great special report. Thank
2: you so much, both of you. It's always a fun conversation.
1: And of course, as ever, great thanks to you, John. Thanks, John. Great to see you. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan and the sound engineer was Saul Rivers. And our thanks, too, to MDC Wolfson Archives for those old recordings of Lawton Childs. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.